Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I love sport, both participating myself, but probably more enjoyably watching others participate. One of the sports that I really get a thrill out of is watching the Olympics every four years. The talent that these people have, the heights that they can reach, and the way that they get countries and communities behind them, I think is absolutely tremendous. Now, we've spoken about occupational risk factors for osteoarthritis on a previous episode, but one occupation we've not covered is elite level athletes or Olympians. The intense training schedules, sometimes lasting up to six hours a day, make Olympians more susceptible to joint injury. And on this week's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Debbie Palmer to discuss the prevalence of osteoarthritis in Olympians. Hello, Debbie, and welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Thank you for the invitation. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have a chat. Well, I really appreciate your time, and I think it's a topic that will be very near and dear to the hearts of many of our listeners, particularly those of whom have played sport or have some interest in elite sport. But before we get into that, can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like for you now? Yeah, sure. So I started out as an athlete myself and was interested in exercise physiology. And I worked for a a few years as an exercise physiologist, but I I had a real interest in exercise and immunology, illness prevention, and also an interest around injury and injury prevention. I got the opportunity to do my PhD through the RFU, the England Rugby Organization. And that really kind of ignited my interest in injury epidemiology and injury prevention. And my my work and my research work really has just grown from there. I've had the privilege to work for the IOC Medical Commission across a number of Olympic Games, looking at in-game surveillance, so injury and illness in athletes whilst they're competing during the Olympic Games. I've worked with the Scottish Rugby Union. We currently have a World Rugby-funded Tri-Nations project looking at uh, injury prevention within Women's Rugby Union across England, Scotland and Wales. I've worked with Enduro World Series, so again, it's it's a bit of a kind of a wide breadth of different types of research and I'm interested in 
injury prevention, short and long-term consequences. So not just in elite sport, but also in community sport and in youth cohorts. And then some more of my more recent work is also looking at longer-term health consequences of injury. So looking at retired athlete cohorts, but also general exercising population. So what are the consequences of significant joint injuries with respect to OA and, and pain outcomes? Wonderful. And so it sounds like you've got an incredibly full plate there with lots of stakeholder groups, which I guess in this particular context is so, so important to have those sporting groups that are pivotally involved. Just out of interest, do you still participate actively, regularly in sport yourself? I do. I mountain bike. I still skate occasionally. I don't have my speed skates because they're quite uncomfortable, but I do still skate a little bit and I also ski. So yeah, I I like to stay active, I think, like many of uh, my peers. And in terms of those sports that you participate in, do you generally participate more in mountain biking now in terms of its accessibility or are there other other activities that you'd like to participate in? So Scotland is great for outdoor activities and Edinburgh is in a really great location. So there's there's superb mountain biking on, on the doorstep down in the borders and then further up in the highlands. Occasionally we can also ski, obviously depending on the Scottish weather, um, but there is a ski resort which is about an hour away. So it's a real mix of things. And also actually during lockdown, I got into outdoor swimming as well, which uh, has been has been a revelation. It's been quite enjoyable. You're very brave. What's the average water temperature there? Uh, in the winter, five degrees. Right. In the, in the sea. So so the lochs are colder. So in the winter, it's actually warmer to swim in the sea. And then in the summer, it's it's warmer to swim in the lochs. Wow. That's incredibly brave. I find it uh, very difficult to get in the water here if it's less than 20 degrees. But anyway, I'm spoiled. <laughs> You're much braver than I'll ever be. Debbie, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? It's an interesting question. It's an awful question at the same time. So all of the different activities that I do, I think I would say I'm an energetic from a research point of view and a career point of view. I'm curious, uh, analytical, I would say. And then with the different types of project, the different types of work and the different collaborations that we have, I'd say that I'm, I'm a supportive person and a team player. I think with whether it's in in research or, or other aspects, I think that being a team player is a good quality to have. Oh, definitely. And I, you know, I think a lot of research really thrives on people, particularly from different disciplines coming together with different skill sets and really harnessing that. Do you think that's something, you know, I mean, obviously you're an elite athlete yourself, but is that something that you think is innate in people? Is it something that's trained and you learn? I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. As an athlete, it really depends what sport you're involved in. There are, whether you are naturally a team player, if you're taking part in a team sport, then you will tend to learn those skills to be able to succeed and to thrive in that kind of environment. And I do think that a lot of sport-related skills are transferable to, to you know, professional life, to post-athletic career life. So, so yeah. Yeah. Well, Debbie... The, obviously, the topic of today is looking at whether osteoarthritis affects elite athletes. And you've recently published two wonderful papers in the British Journal of Sports Medicine looking specifically at that topic. Can you, I guess, before we get into the main content, just provide a few insights into your experience as an elite athlete, both in terms of training and what was involved there and any injuries that you may have had during your sporting career? 
So when I was competing, it was pre what people might know now as lottery funding. So there there wasn't quite the same funding back in the day. So we trained twice a day, generally six days a week. So there would be one one rest day each week. So that was kind of a, a usual pattern. But at the same time, many of us were still working at the same time. So unfortunately, we weren't able to, to rest as much as is needed, particularly to compete at that elite level. Most of the types of training that we would do, so obviously there was a lot of on-ice training. We would do weight training in the gym, plyometrics, other strength type training, quite a bit of cycling as well. Hence me continuing with the mountain biking now. Um, in terms of injuries, I, I would say that I had more than my fair share. I think that there are some athletes who are really robust and they can absorb great amounts of training, different types of training. Um, but yeah, I would say that I had a, a number of significant injuries, ones that impacted on my ability to continue competing to, to the best of my ability. Maybe it was a, a lack of knowledge around some training activities and or the lack of rest with some of the work that I was having to do at the same time. But yeah, so I... I would say I had uh, injuries to to deal with. And, and that's also what makes it so interesting, the work that I'm doing now that I'm actually getting to work on the other side in this particular area. So, Debbie, when you apply that sort of retrospectoscope, do you think back and say, well, you know, I, I wish I had participated in more injury prevention activities and I wish they were more pervasive at that time? And if you're willing to share do any of the injuries that you sustained still trouble you to this day? So I think that perhaps some of the the treatments that I had in order to get back from injury as quickly as possible, maybe they would be different now. I mean, that's a little bit difficult to say. And again, these things are easy to, to say in hindsight. I would have rested more, but that's a consistent theme in elite sport. It's trying to get back as, as quickly as possible. And these are some of the things that actually are coming through that we're seeing in, in our research currently around incomplete rehabilitation and recovery from injury and then the, the increases in recurrent injury of, of these particular problems. Um, for me, most of mine were lumbar spine injuries. So I had a couple of major disc herniations, which for a speed skater is not, is not ideal. I do still have symptoms with that. But actually in staying active, I found different exercises, different activities that make me feel better. And I know the things that if my back is sore, then I'll do the exercises and or I'll go and, and do some, some physical activity. And, and generally I feel better afterwards. So I think with what I have, I've become more adept at managing the, the symptoms that I currently have. So Debbie, just want to dig a little bit more into the papers that have recently come out. Can you just describe... I guess in the first instance, just a little bit more about the study, the populations, how you assess them, and then we can get into a little bit more of the results that you found. Yeah, so we had incredible support through the World Olympians Association and also through the IOC Medical Commission to be able to promote this study to Olympians globally. So we surveyed, at the end of the study, we, we had surveyed just over 3,700 retired Olympians across 90 different countries. At the same time, we promoted the survey to members of the general population, obviously minus the Olympic participation. So, so we had recruited a general population control that had completed the same survey. And we got around just under 2,000 general population controls to make comparisons between them and the Olympians. We asked questions around injury history, physician-diagnosed, self-report osteoarthritis, current joint pain, 
along with a host of other measures, including current physical activity and, and disease states. Tremendous. And this was a cross-sectional study. And in terms of the demographics of the sample itself, the average age was somewhere in their 40s for both the Olympians and the comparator sample, right? Yes, yeah. So compared with other retired athlete studies, the age of the Olympus was was lower compared to, to other studies, but comparable with the general population. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really important we just conceptualize the fact that these people are in their 40s so that all of what we're about to hear from Debbie about the prevalence of joint symptoms and osteoarthritis reflects a population of people who, at least from my perspective, are still quite young rather than Oftentimes, as you just intimated there, Debbie, a lot of these studies of exporting people are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. So these people are still quite young. So what did you find? What were the common sites of joint pain and how frequent were they? So we, we first of all looked at what was happening within the athletes themselves. So what were the most frequent joint injuries. As you, as you said, the study was cross-sectional and we were asking about injury history. So there's some some challenges around recall bias for individuals remembering all of their injury history. But what we did do was use a significant injury definition. So any injuries that lasted 30 days or more, because hopefully they were they were more likely to be remembered by by those who were participating. So we were just looking at significant injuries when we were asking Olympians and also the general population to, to report any issues that they had had. Through reporting injuries, we found that the knee, the lumbar spine and the hip and also the shoulder were the most frequently injured locations for Olympians. When we looked at current joint pain, these were also the most frequent locations for current joint pain. So Overall, 41% of our retired Olympian cohort reported experiencing current joint pain. So, so that was at the time of survey. And these were most common to the lumbar spine. And this was followed then by the knee and the shoulder. We also asked them about their osteoarthritis diagnosis. So this was self-reported physician-diagnosed OA. Across the Olympians, we found that one in four Olympians reported having physician-diagnosed osteoarthritis. And again, in terms of prevalence by different body joints, we found that OA was most prevalent at the knee. And this was followed by the lumbar spine and then the hip and the shoulder again. So you can see that there's a bit of a pattern we saw within the Olympians. We also asked, then asked the same questions with the general population and we made comparisons between the two groups. Yeah, I mean, it's astounding, really, isn't it, that, you know, 41% of people in their 40s have current joint pain. And, you know, so many of these have ongoing problems related to their, their spine, their knee, their hip, their shoulder. What was the risks that you found associated with injury? So what, what impact did injury have for these people as far as their subsequent likelihood of getting osteoarthritis is concerned? Yeah, so it's well known that injury is a risk factor for the development and progression of OA, and that's in any cohort. And we found that within Olympians, naturally, those who had significant joint injuries had higher rates of osteoarthritis and higher rates of pain. They also had higher rates of OA and pain when Olympians had recurrent injury versus Olympians who had no recurrent injury. So when we compared Olympians with controls, 
we could see that the overall rate of OA was higher in Olympians when it when we compared it with the general population. But this was very likely due to the fact that Olympians had higher rates of injury, which again, we compared Olympians with controls and yes, they had higher rates of injury. When we controlled for some of these risk factors between the two groups, so differences perhaps in age or sex, and when we included injury into that, so if we controlled for injury, Actually, what we saw was the, that the overall rate of OA was not significantly different between Olympians and the general population. So it really was around this injury being the risk factor for Olympians. So if an Olympian did not experience a significant joint injury, they were at no greater risk of having OA than a member of the general population. What we did, however, find when we when we looked at some specific joints, was that we found that Olympians had different consequences with regards to injury. So, for example, if an Olympian had significant knee injury, they were 1.5 times more likely to report knee OA compared with those in the general population reporting a knee injury. So the consequences of knee injury are greater for Olympians. Similarly, when we looked at the hip, Olympians were four times more likely to report hip OA after hip injury compared to the general population. So the consequences of hip injury are, are different again. And then when we looked at the shoulder, Olympians were 2.6 times more likely to re report shoulder OA after a shoulder injury compared with the general population. So this wasn't the same across all joints, and there are some joint-specific risk factors, which we know. But for Olympians, looking at the knee, hip and, and the shoulder, there were greater consequences of injury for them than compared with those in the general population. Thanks for summarizing that. It's really, really valuable information and obviously highlights the impact that injury can have both in the short term for participation, but um, as we're analyzing now, the longer term as far as osteoarthritis is concerned. You just started alluding to it, but what's the impact of more general demographic risk factors, both in terms of age, sex, other factors on risk of osteoarthritis in Olympians? Uh, so female Olympians were more likely to have knee OA than male Olympians. Increasing BMI increased the risk for later life OA and pain. Increasing age, again, naturally um, increased the, the risk of OA and pain within Olympians. But again, when we compared, so these are all known risk factors for the general population. When we compared these these between Olympians and controls, there were few significant differences. I think that there was one around the hip uh, for female Olympians, where female Olympians had higher rates of OA compared with females in the general population. But generally, these risk factors were similar for Olympians and the general population. Yeah, so it's. I think it's really important to encapture that you know if you do have a risk of osteoarthritis for whatever reason, whether that's as a consequence of of injury or something else that can be compounded further by being above a healthy weight. And so I think that's really important to just emphasize. And, and obviously the background risk factors that we know predispose people to osteoarthritis, such as female sex, being older, which you can't necessarily modify as well, um, also play a role here. So Debbie, what are the implications of this? What should we be doing differently potentially to what has happened in the past and how should our olympians be being managed if they do have a joint injury so i guess in the first instance if you can just focus more on the maybe primary prevention and then think a little bit more about secondary or tertiary 
Yeah, I, I think it's important to to remember that th- these data are on an elite sporting population, and somebody who is who is exercising as a member of the general population just because they get a joint injury doesn't mean that, that this is necessarily going to happen. There are some unique risk factors for Olympians and for primary injury prevention. Whilst we don't have injury and OA data across a number of different sports, what we do have is a, is a wealth of injury epidemiological studies across different sports. So it's really easy for us to identify those sports that have a significant risk of significant knee injuries, knee ligament injuries, lumbar spine injuries, shoulder injuries, for example. So those sports with a known uh, risk for significant injuries to these particular joints, I think that there could be more of a focus on those particular sports and with the athletes on injury prevention. So, so preventing the injury from occurring in the first place, looking at injury prevention, training strategies, training programs, strengthening proprioceptive training programs, you know, anything that can modify that risk of experiencing the injury, or if it's not possible to prevent the injury completely, at least is it possible to lessen the severity of the injury? So the athletes are not experiencing these significant joint injuries. The other part of that is around making sure that when an athlete then has sustained a significant joint injury, that they are afforded that time to fully recover and rehabilitate that injury so that they can make sure that they return to full function before they go back to elite sport participation, particularly to reduce the risk of recurrent injury, which we also know is a a risk factor for, um, there's almost a dose response with the number of injuries and the level of OA and and pain in athletes. For anybody who does, who is a, for example, a retired Olympian who's carrying excess weight, is there any additional message that you might give to them? What we did see in our cohort was uh, an increase in BMI from during our Olympians' careers to then into retirement, which is perhaps unsurprising. And we know that even just reducing weight to a small amount can make significant differences in the amount of symptomatic OA and is able to, to reduce pain, particularly around the knee. So we would advocate that those Olympians, those athletes who have a history of significant joint injury, that they try to maintain a healthy weight, or if they are already kind of moving into overweight and obese, that they try to take on board some weight management strategies where they can reduce their weight, in effect, trying to to delay onset of OA. Again, it's not inevitable, but if it's possible to try to delay that onset of OA and pain, if they already have OA and pain to to try to reduce some of the symptoms around that OA and, and pain. Tremendous. Now, Debbie, is, are there any other messages that you want to convey that you think are important for the community that stem from the studies that you've just published? I think it's within the retired athlete population, generally Olympians in retirement are as active, if not more active than the general population. And I think through my own anecdotal experience and what we also see within within some of these Olympians, they are continuing to exercise, but what they're doing is they're modifying. So they're finding physical activity, exercise, sport, whatever it is that they enjoy doing, but something that is not an aggravator, but actually helps to alleviate some of their symptoms. And I think for for longer term health, not just musculoskeletal health, but for all cause mortality, staying active, keeping going with with some kind of exercise is really important. And, you know, whether it's whatever the exercise is, if you're an elite athlete or you're a recreational exerciser and you have 
away in pain if you can find some form of physical activity exercise that works for you try things if they don't work that's fine try something else um, I think that, that the benefits of that are great. We know that uh, exercise is a natural painkiller and it's also enjoyable. So that would probably be the, the the biggest thing. Yeah, it's a great, great message. So keep moving. Yeah, don't don't stop just because it hurts a little bit. Just find something that you can do that doesn't aggravate the symptoms that you've got. And and seek advice. So again, pain and OA is, is joint dependent. The risk factors are joint dependent and the types of exercise and physical activity that you might do would also be joint dependent. So depending on the type of OA that you have and, you know, the joints that it affects, seek expert advice on the types of activity, the types of exercise that you can do to try to improve your symptoms. Wonderful. So we'll include a link to the papers that Debbie's just published. One is on the upper limb and spine and one's on the lower limb. And also include a link. There's a recent blog that featured Debbie's articles with a great infographic in there. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. And obviously, if you if you want to dig a little bit more into the importance of injury prevention, please do take a listen to some of the older podcasts from Tim Hewitt or Jackie Whitaker or Adam Colvener. Now, Debbie, just in closing, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? So I think, again, it's it's being cognizant that what we've spoken about today is about elite sport. And, you know, there is some risk with uh, of injury with sport participation, but those risks are low with physical activity and exercise. And I think this the idea of exercise prescription and using physical activity and exercise to improve people's health. I think that that's a really key thing. It would be great to see um, government organisations, health boards, medical professionals engaging with more. So exercise prescription, you know, we know the benefits of, of, of this and we're still finding out more and more about the benefits of exercise and physical activity. It's that old adage that if exercise was a pill, absolutely everybody would be taking it because it because it's it's that easy and, and the benefits of it so i think it would be to get organizations government bodies health boards to really engage and promote exercise prescription for the wider yeah. for the wider community yeah it's a it's a great message and i think from a public health perspective hopefully governments in time will shift in that direction and be a little bit more proactive about the delivery of exercise in the community rather than waiting for everybody to develop obesity and other non-communicable diseases that are really scourging uh, us at the moment. And ultimately they have to react to in the healthcare system, but potentially could have prevented by being a little bit more proactive in the first instance. Debbie, why do you do what you do? What's your primary motivation? I, do, I have this interest. So um, I've been both sides of the of the coin, being an athlete and then working on, on the other side with research. And ultimately, as a researcher, what, what we'd like to do is we like to be able to provide new knowledge. So, you know, there's a wealth of information out there. But um, if we can build on that and provide new knowledge, new information that can inform something that makes a difference to a cohort or to a community, I think that's ultimately what kind of motivates us. And much of the stuff that we do, much of the work that we do is is at the elite end, but increasingly we're also looking at recreational exercises, sport within the community and, and youth sport. And I think some of the lessons that we learn on elite athletes can be employed within the wider sporting community. So for greater public health benefit in, you know, in recreational uh, sport communities. 
And I think that's the real key thing is to try to scale up the lessons and the, and the new knowledge and the information that we're gathering to have a wider public health impact. Yeah, it's such important work, and I hope you continue to make a huge difference the way you the way you are. And just in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge, or wisdom that you'd like to give for people that have osteoarthritis? I would say keep keep moving. We touched on it. Seek advice about what exercises are good for you, depending on the type of osteoarthritis that you have. Try different approaches. Try things out. Don't worry if if things don't work. You know, try something else. Find whatever it is that works for you, but keep moving. Yeah, it's such an important message, and hopefully everybody listens to that message, deploys it, and enacts it. And Debbie, from my perspective, thank you so much for spending some time with us, sharing the insights that you've gained over the years, but particularly from these recent studies that have just come out. And I hope you continue to make a massive difference in the field. Thank you. Thanks, David. So I hope you enjoyed this week's content. It's staggering that one in four retired Olympians have physician-diagnosed osteoarthritis in a joint. 41% of them also report having current joint pain. As mentioned, this appears to be more common in the shoulder, the knee, the hip, the ankle, and the spine, and appears to increase following a prior injury. It's more common in women. It's more common in those who are older and more common in those who are above a healthy weight. The implications are profound, and in an ideal world, these injuries would have been prevented from happening in the first place through injury prevention activities. But as Debbie said, there is lots of opportunity here to reduce the impact of that injury recurring through timely rehabilitation, through thinking about when an athlete is fully functional and can return to play. And then for those who have had an injury, and have some joint symptoms and they're above a healthy weight, look at what can be modified to help with the joint symptoms. So as a massive sports fan, who's someone who cares a lot about both retired rugby players, soccer players, cyclists, triathletes, but in particular Olympians, I really care about what happens to them long-term. There's a lot that can be done both to prevent injuries but also to prevent osteoarthritis longer term. And we should do that as a community. Thank you so much for your interest in this week's session. Particular thanks to Debbie Palmer. I look forward to talking to you again soon. But between now and the next time we speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 